This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an associate media producer at Christianity Today. Hey, Mark. You're the associate media producer. We don't have another one. Okay, so, I am the one and only. You're the one and only. And I only. also forgot an, an award in my title, digital media producer. Digital media, all right. Because that's specifically that's, what I focus on. Right. You are also the only editor-in-chief. Exactly. We are both special. That's what I mean. <laughs> Everyone's special here at Christianity Today. Except we're both podcast hosts, so I guess that brings us down okay. to earth. Um, who is joining us? It is Steve Gamer. He's the co-founder with his wife, Adni, Partners Relief and Development. Steve acts as president of this organization, which draws on the experience of Steve and his wife to share firsthand accounts of how the children of Myanmar, mired in conflict and oppression, are treated and what others can do to help them. So welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks, Mark. Where are you calling us from, Steve? Uh, I just got home to Norway, which is the birthplace of my wife and our current home. So I'm in Norway right now. Where in Norway? Right in the middle of the country, a city called Trondheim. My wife grew up on a little island just off of off oh. out in the water from Trondheim called Itrea. Wow, that so. is interesting. Yeah, I went there for uh, the thousandth anniversary of Christianity coming to Norway. Oh, cool! And yeah, I got a personal tour of the Trondheim Cathedral by a professor who was an expert in that area. I got it was a it was a I was invited by the uh, government of Norway to come and do some reporting and then uh, report on it in a magazine I worked on at the time called Christian History. So it was one of the more amazing trips I've taken. Excellent. The pilgrimage that ends at Niroros, thats the cathedral you went to. Yeah. That that pilgrimage walks right past my house and um wow the the pilgrims often stop at my house for water so i have a i have a fond attachment to that whole pilgrimage and the cathedral itself well that's yeah i have good memories of that trip oh that's really cool we should definitely do a podcast sometime about christianity in norway because i'm already thinking of things that i'd like to talk about that don't actually relate to our topic today which is (laughs) myanmar which i am actually really excited to talk about today so let's get into it Seven years after Myanmar became a constitutional democracy, Pope Francis is visiting the country currently as we speak. The Pope's tour comes months after the government began expelling the Rohingya, a predominantly Muslim ethnic group. Much of the international attention surrounding his visit has focused on whether he will explicitly call out the government's human rights violations. But the Pope's visit has been predominantly spurred by Myanmar's Christian population. Christians make up less than 10% of the population in this majority Buddhist country and are most likely to be represented in the country's minority ethnic groups, communities that have long clashed with the Buddhist-influenced federal government. This week on the show, we will get into the deeper layers of the religious, ethnic, and cultural conflict that persists in Myanmar, a Southeast Asian country bordered by India, China, Laos, and Thailand. All right. I already have so many questions lined up, but as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, we are made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Mark, you had something that you thought was particularly of interest in our December issue. 
I draw uh, everyone's attention who is a subscriber, and for you that aren't subscribers, I'd encourage you to subscribe to be able to read this editorial by uh, Matt Reynolds. He's an associate editor. He's our book review editor, and he writes the occasional editorial, and Matt has a real gift for editorial writing, and whenever he writes, and it's usually on pro-life issues, he is so eloquent and powerful. I just love to read his stuff. Uh, This particular essay, the title is Provocative in Defense of Pro-Life Hypocrisy, and and he talks about uh, trying to create a what is called a consistent pro-life ethic where, where Christians get criticized for it. Well, if you're pro-life, uh, then you must do X, Y, and Z also if you're pro-life. And he just talks about how each of the issues that we generally add to that list— might be hunger, might be poverty, might be capital punishment, might be war, has its own ethical aspects to consider, unique to them. So uh, Christians are called to have a pro-life ethic, but what that looks like and how one reasons that is, can be a very complex thing as we try to integrate Bible and ethics and theology. He just does a wonderful job of talking about that in a way that is very illuminating for someone like me especially. I think you did a good job capturing it without actually revealing too much about it. Okay. <laughs> then people would have no incentive to read it. It's too well captured. Okay, so if you want to read the editorial, you want to read our magazine, you can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And thank you to everyone who does subscribe to the magazine. We appreciate you. All right. Mark, we, as you know, maybe you forgot because you've missed so many. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but after we discuss the news or after we talk, introduce the news topic, we give a gut check or explain our visceral reaction to the particular current events topic. So any thoughts, reactions? So what am I reacting to, the Pope's visit or to the news? Why don't you of- react to the Pope's visit and... The Rohingya story. Yeah, I don't know that I have much of a reaction. This has been one of those stories that's been off in the periphery of my mind. And I think the what I'm grateful for this podcast is it sometimes forces me to learn about a topic that I've just let sit at the periphery of my mind. And I actually wasn't aware, except in the most general terms, what was happening to, uh, they called them Rohingyas or Muslim Rohingyas or Muslims from Rohingya. I'm still confused about that, obviously. Okay. <laughs> Mark, there's going to be a transformation in how much you yeah. know. Well, I did, a, uh, frankly, I did a great deal of reading to get prepared for this. And uh, the one thing that impressed me more than anything, it's in a very confused part of the world, confusing part of the world, filled with lots of tragedy and sadness. And I'm, ho- I'm hoping Steve can give us some, some insight into that. I am really interested in just kind of learning more about, you know, Burmese who are Christian and what compelled the Pope to really try to honor and seek out this population. As the one thing I did react to as I was preparing for this was uh, the extent to which Burmese Christians have reached out to try to help their Muslim neighbors here. I thought that was exemplary. Yes, so. I, I reported on that. So thank yes. you for reading my piece. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was, um, it was written by a fine reporter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's dive into these questions right now. Steve, I don't really think that we can understand the story unless we understand just how diverse Myanmar is. Can you give us a sense of the cultural, ethnic, and religious diversity that exists in the country? Yeah, and I, I think that's a good starting point, Morgan. You know how how in the world, geopolitical boundaries or countries are not, they don't follow human geography. They don't follow what ethnic group lives in what valley or what what people live on which mountain. 
they follow terrain, rivers, natural resources, and they were largely divvied up by colonial or imperial powers uh, before we were born. These, these political boundaries don't pay any respect to where an ethnic group may be located. In the case of Burma, uh, or now called Myanmar, you've got a country whose border was painted largely by the colonial administration and brought together and unified under a man named General Aung San that they thought could lead the way to democracy at the end of World War II. He himself was a, an Imperial Army trained traitor to the Allied resistance. But nonetheless, the, the borders that were painted put 135 ethnic groups within the boundaries of this country. 85% of those 135 groups or that total population is Bamar. So the dominant people, obviously, is the Bamar or Burmese people. Um, but what, what you have to take into account is the massive ethnic groups that are inside the border, those other 134 ethnic groups, some of them like the Shan numbering well over 5 million and the Karen numbering well over 4 million people. And not only that, but the Shan, as a case in point, are cut in half between the political boundary between China and Burma and even some in Laos. So you've got Shan in China, Laos, and Burma. You've got on the western border border in Rakhine State, you've got the Rohingya, uh, who, who, who uh, ethno-linguistically were Bengali or at the time even Pakistani people, because that's what it was called at some point. But you've got these major ethnic groups vying for a space in geopolitical Myanmar. And geopolitical Myanmar, as you know, is run by the world's 12th largest army. It's 500,000 conventional troops. And the dominance, especially in the ethnic states of the army against anywhere there are resources, is the supreme issue. You may be familiar with the Kachin. That's been in the news recently because of the Pope's visit. They say that they're 85% Catholic. The Kachin also is another good example of an ethnic group that was divided in half by physical geography or physio physical geopolitics, half of the Kachin being in China and half of them being in what is now Myanmar. Same with the Chin. You know, they were cut in half. Half of them are in India, the other half are in Myanmar. So what you have in Burma is a massive state of complexity when it comes to ethnicity, religion, and linguistics. And this is part of what plays into the conflict or the, the complex issue of understanding what's exactly going on in the country. I just had a question, more, if, we, if we were to step back before the colonial era, were each of these people groups, did they constitute their own quote unquote nation or uh, was there some force that was trying to like in China you have a long history of a central Chinese government trying to uh, incorporate a variety of uh, ethnic groups in, in, in into one government umbrella it's not it's not a feature of just colonialism it seems to be a feature of history sometimes but how did that work out in Myanmar well the 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 major ethnic groups like the Shan and even a small one like the Kareni, were self-governing with their own constitutions. In the case of the Karen, not only were they self-governing, but because of their support of the Allied forces against the Imperial Army in World War II, 
they were promised their own country by England, of course. So each of these 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 larger ethnic groups would would have been kingdoms. In the case of the Rakhine, it's Arakan. That was a kingdom, the kingdom of Arakan. Um, they would have had no central governance before the colonial administration. Uh, and even under the, the early administration in the 1800s, uh, they weren't there as as a colonial power, they were they were there in hill stations protecting their interests in in India. So I would say that you're right; it's a feature of history. Um, I would also say that the colonial era contributed to the complexity that you have with the division of you know massive ethnic groups within what is now geo, uh, geopolitically Myanmar. It's very interesting, very helpful to give a give us a sense of the confused state of things right now politically uh, and ethno ethnographically, I guess, is what the way you'd put it. Yeah, without this turning into me and Mark's wonky <laughs> history podcast, which we sometimes have this temptation of, I just have one more question. So I'm assuming that they were colonized by the British who came over to this part of the world when they were attempting to colonize India. And as you know, India is kind of a state that also has a lot of diversity as well and was kind of pulled together by the British in, in many ways. So was this all part of the same colonial effort? In the case of Myanmar and India, it's a part of the same effort. Uh, Myanmar was never a colony of Great Britain. It was annexed as a protectorate. That was the term they used back then uh, in order to protect their interests uh, and have a buffer between China and India or other powers in India. So they occupied it, but they didn't colonize it. That means that they didn't have as as broad of, of, of a governing body. Neither did they have as many of the um, legal and social norms that they would have imported if it were a full-fledged colony. That was my wonky. You like wonky. <laughs> Morgan. <laughs> I, I love it. I really do. Yeah, well, we do. In, in, in order for us to understand the pressures that the Christians are under there, we I think we need to have at least a dip our toe in that wonky world. Yeah. And yeah. I'd, I'd like to add at this point that everybody in Burma suffers. There is no compelling ideology that is making this suffering happen. When I first started working there back in the 90s, you know, we started in 94 and I was I was drawn to the idea that perhaps communism or socialism or or what what was called the Burmese way to socialism at the time was what was what was driving this violence and this marginalization of people. But the clear the, the clear picture now, actually, for years, is that what is driving this is simply power and money. It is the vast natural resources that lay under the ground, under the soil of these ethnic states, and the direct or strategic control of those resources in the pursuit of exporting them to, you know, two countries that are now energy dependent on Myanmar, which is India and China. That right there should help you understand the importance of this country uh, and also the uh, what contributes to the complexity of the uh, of the war that is going on there is the opium uh, trade there is that a big part of the economic factors as well yeah it's a massive part of it in the north of burma especially in shan state and that is an industry that is also run by 
by the regime, by the very regime that the Pope was, you know, having tea with this week. The DEA says they're the second largest importer of of opium and an opium product to the United States. It's they're they're big time, and I've been close enough in Sean State to look through a telescope and see pictures of their manufacturing and their poppy fields and so forth. And my friends have seen them while they're growing and and talked to the villagers who are um, leveraged and even forced to grow these poppies and harvest this this illicit uh, material for the army. So that's another blog or uh, another podcast for you guys to cover. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, again, we have some of this background, especially as we're going to try and talk about the Christian population, you know, which is a minority within these other minority groups. What type of reaction have you seen overall um, on behalf of Burmese Christians towards the mostly Muslim Rohingya? Um, I have seen tremendous courage and uh, even among our staff members, we have 65 full-time staff. And, and in Myanmar, we work with a number of ethnic Christians who risk their lives in order to help these Rohingya who are, in, in one case, there's 150,000 of them, you know, trapped and surrounded by barbed wire in, in, in a city called Sitwe. Our work there has been made possible because of Christians that have helped us get under the wire and and get involved with with these Rohingya people. So as it relates directly to the Rohingya, I know that there is a lot of fear in the Christian church that, you know, if they associate with the Rohingya, that there will be reprisals, and there have been. But there is also a commensurate level of courage and um, missional bravery that we have experienced as we've worked with believers who who really want to show the golden rule to these these victims of violence. Are, is, are we speaking of any particular ethnic group or is this something that you've seen transcend ethnicity? Well, the ones that we work closely with are the Karen Morgan. You know, they have a a rich 200-year-old history of, of Christianity. The first American missionary went to what was then called Burma, um, Adoniram Judson. And the heritage of Adoniram Judson is this, you know, massive movement of Christianity, especially among the Karen. So the ones that I think of specifically while I'm talking are the Karen, but I know that there are many who would would make the st- same courageous moves in order to prevent or uh, or stop the violence against the men, women, and children called Rohingya. Yeah, I'd give a shout out right here. We have our, right within striking distance of the CT offices, we have Judson College, of course, which is founded in his honor uh, and to perpetuate the great things that he did, uh, and among other places, uh, Burma. So we recognize the name. Yeah, and you know, they're still using his Bible, his translation, which was translated in prison, and they're still using his medical lexicon in much of the ethnic states as uh, as their medical dictionary. So wow. he has he wow. contributed a lot to the country. He's he's a hero to Myanmar. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day. CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. 
whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. And then uh, coming full circle, there is a uh, Chin congregation just about three blocks from Christianity Today's offices that my wife and I were honored to attend when they dedicated that church. My wife works with World Relief and with has worked with many Chin refugees. Excellent. So uh, here they are back uh, within striking distance of the their the college named after their I guess father in the faith. Yeah, uh, we also work with the Chin. You know, this might be a good moment to talk about um, this sort of the state of Christians and Christianity uh, within Myanmar and 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 how they fare under. Uh, the regime now as opposed to to their former times. Please. I, I like to talk about this because while media often portrays these massive sectarian chasms between the faiths, if you're actually in Myanmar and in the ethnic states, uh, even in, in Bamar or Burmese-dominated villages, you'll find these people largely living in peace and and appreciating one another's differences not uh not not acting out in violence or racism or the things that we see you know gracing the magazines and media of the world and i credit the regime for a consistent campaign of dividing these ethnic groups and these sectarian concerns uh, by initiating different kinds of violent events or uh, inciting different kinds of riots and capitalizing on the racism that is in all of us. I mean, the, the racism and the, the, um, the, the, the things that make, uh, make people prejudice against one another, they are, they are definitely there. And they are always under the surface, and I believe that's a universal. This regime goes back into their history and forces a knife between these different sides and provokes incredible violence. In the 90s, the best example of this was the Democratic Karen Buddhist Army. That's in Karen State. That was simply a proxy of the SPDC, the State Peace and Development Council, and their mandate was just to be the ones that get blamed for all the problems and all the violence in Karen State, and to be the the news headline saying it's Karen Christians fighting Karen Buddhists. And if you if you if you follow the news, and I noticed that you guys know Ben Rogers. Uh, you know, he wrote a whole book about this, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, where Buddhism and Christianity was was the, the, the divide was exacerbated by the regime who gave concessions, mining concessions and and uh, kickbacks to some corrupt leadership in the Karen movement who who formed their own army and became this 
this violent proxy. The same thing has happened in all of the ethnic states that we work in, uh, and most notably in recent times with those people that you mentioned, the Rohingya. All of that violence was exacerbated and um, incited by people in uniform various times in modern in, in recent history, but most strikingly in 2012. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there, there is religious persecution in Burma. In the 90s and 2000s, it was often pastors who were targeted when a village was attacked and then tortured and killed to be made an example of. And, and the reason is as much because they're the community leaders as because of their faith. But when they moved more into the 2000s, you saw the regime using this religious divide as as the reason they need to be there to, to quote unquote, protect the Karen and protect their, their interests in their country, which, which was fiction. Yeah, it, it raises a couple questions just for my clarification. So this uh, Karen military insurgency, uh, you're suggesting that it doesn't represent uh, the Karen in general, but a more radical, corrupt end of it? In the beginning, it, it, it represented a very small and very corrupt end of it. And it was a priest, a guy who posed as a priest who was a spy, who got permission to build a jetty uh, at the former capital of Karen State. Um, oh, now I can't remember the name of it. But that capital was overrun by the weapons cachet and the deals that were made in order to pull out these these corrupt Karen leaders in the name of in what they said is religious persecution of Buddhists by Christians, which again is it, it, it's an exaggeration of what was actually happening. That's helpful there, but then it makes me ask: You keep on talking about the regime, and I yes. don't know what that means since the head of the government is uh, this Nobel Prize-winning woman. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the name right: Aung San Suu Kyi who doesn't seem to be the type of person who's interested in the type of behavior you're describing. So tell us what's going on. Well, at the time that that kind of violence was happening in Karen State, the Karen were largely united under Suu Kyi and the democracy movement, as were the Kachin and the Chin and, and many of the pro-democracy groups. They took up arms uh, under the same banner as Suu Kyi, and she she stood as an icon for what could possibly be a form of federalism in, in Myanmar. When she got out of house arrest and, and then was supposedly elected to be the the president, now called the state counselor, the, the hope was that she would lead out in her values and speak on behalf of those oppressed people uh, who suffer under the regime. The regime is a military dictatorship with uh, constitutional authority to change the name of the country, for example, which they've done, change the name of the flag, which they've done without re referendum, and, um, and, and go after the resource base that is, again, under the soil in Myanmar without, uh, without any kind of a civil process. So it is a regime and the senior general Min Aung Liang, who the Pope just had a had a meeting with, you know, he's a war criminal who cut his teeth on killing Shan kids and then uh, other other ethnic Chinese children in within Burma's border in the north in 2009 and continued along those same lines until today. 
he's the one that issued the 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 call for clearing operations to kill well to burn down Rohingya villages they burned down since August 25th more than 280 of them and uh and then you know all of the other terrible violence that you've read about in the paper okay so is is it fair to say that she's uh she just doesn't have she has a a formal title but she doesn't seem to have power to actually control the uh the machinery of government at this point she has no constitutional power she can't get anything through parliament parliament's dominated constitutionally dominated by by the army and so so public policy and uh any any control of government she has none what she does have is massive international following and interest and that's why the world was waiting for her to take a moral posture take a moral stand about what's happening and speak on behalf of these millions of people who are being killed uh and and marginalized many of her supporters say that she she's been consolidating power in order to actually have political capital in order to make real lasting political change but even her her biggest supporters which are heads of state and so forth are giving up on the whole program now because she she not only doesn't talk about them she uh talks as though she's a part of the regime's policy to the point where last month she even said that groups like us who are helping to save the lives of Rohingya uh displaced people are supporting terrorism that is not that is not the the voice of a moral authority that's the voice of someone who has either caved in or was always on the other side of the moral issue you mentioned that she was part of this democracy movement that was supported by a lot of ethnic groups and as we've mentioned, those represent many of, or that's where many of the country's Christians are located. What did what did these ethnic groups want exactly? You know, you talked about them wanting democracy, but they wanted. I'm assuming they wanted some sort of rep, formal representation in the government. Yeah, I mean, the larger body of the Karen government. That's what they want. They want federalism, and they want you know equal rights in in a federal system where they have limited authority like in the United States to to manage the resources of their state they they felt that Suchi was i mean if you went to any Karen home back in the 90s or early 2000 you would see her poster on their wall and you'd see buttons that they had gotten at speeches and so forth uh so she was she was the icon of their highest aspiration for freedom both both um well for democracy i'll say um and and now she has she has broken trust with the very people who voted for her and um and even those who who have who have worked to support her and help her gain a measure of justice in a very unjust system what is your take on what the pope's presence this week in myanmar means um I I was really hopeful that you know this pope has spoken out strongly about fundamental rights and about uh the sanctity of all lives and and um he has spoken out specifically against what many are calling the genocide of the Rohingya right now and so I was hopeful that in this visit he would he would break from the diplomatic middle road and 
and speak the truth. He didn't. He didn't the first day, the second day, or the third day, or today. And uh, instead, he chose general terms that if you know what's going on, you know that he is talking about those people. But in in terms of, of the people themselves, he has further supported a denial of, in my opinion, their humanity. I mean, one of the steps towards genocide is is dehumanizing these people, any people. And the first thing that the regime came out with in 2012, after, you know, they, they revoked their citizenship in 1982. That was under um, General Ney Nguyen, another of, of the line of di- army dictators. Uh, but, but what they've done, what they did after the violence was, was say there's no such thing as Rohingya. There's only Bamar people. Well, the Rohingya have been Rohingya for a thousand years in Myanmar, and there's there's piles of material evidence to support that. And to deny them their own name would be similar to denying that there's any Karen or that there's any Sean. And for Francis to not use their name, especially that his first meeting was with Min Aung Liang, you know, the probably one of the biggest war criminals alive today. Uh, the senior general of of this army to to not use their name is is to um, contribute to this dehumanization of these people. That's my opinion, um, and I, I I feel really disappointed in him because he has been an audacious and strong voice for justice. For him to do this now, and then I just read before this this talk that we're having, um, an article where a bishop is quoted saying largely the same thing Aung San Suu Kyi has said, and that is that none of this evidence is is conclusive. There isn't, you know, violence going on like people are saying. It's not as bad as it sounds. And, and if you think it is, you ought to go back to school and study. That was one of his bishops. That, that contributes to, um, well, what is the the big single biggest humanitarian uh, crisis of this day, and it's only six weeks old. Help me understand one thing. When I was reading a report that we had published and the New York Times, they had suggested that if the Pope was going to be naming, specifically using the word Rohingya, that that would then put the Christian population there at risk. Well, everything's a threat there. And it, there could have there could be reprisals against the Catholics or the Christians in general um, if if he had spoken clearly uh, about the denial of of justice to these you know to these 1.3 million Rohingyas. But that is that is a risk that I think we should all be willing to take. That to to to, to hold back when there is some kind of Clear, clear moral imperative, in, in my mind, is a denial of the golden rule. And the golden rule or the greatest commandment is the white hot center of what our whole team is about. So I, I feel that, um, that despite the fact that, that there was risk either way, the moral choice, the choice for life would have been to acknowledge that it's not cool to burn down 280 villages a month before I visited your country. It's not cool to rape and throw kids in the fire and dismember and, you know, all these terrible things. And it's not cool that now there's more than 600,000 of these Rohingya people who have survived this terrible plight from their villages and are now in Bangladesh in a state of no man's land. 
I, 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 I feel sad that he didn't acknowledge that. And now he's on his way to Bangladesh after Myanmar. I don't know what he's going to say to the Rohingya themselves. So th- that's my opinion. I don't mean to be iconoclastic about it, but the same kind of persecution, we, you know, th- these are not Rohingya Muslims. These are Rohingya people. Um, we know of 196 Christians who gather to worship in, in, a, in a place that we know of, and we've, we've met with them and have worked with them. There are many Christians and other, other faiths represented in this predominantly uh, nominal Muslim group, but they are Rohingya human beings before they're some kind of, you know, religious cloth. Yeah, I, I get your frustration, and uh, my reading of the situation would be very similar to yours. Uh, trying to be as charitable as I can toward the Pope, a part of me wonders, he, he dealt with some uh, brutal regimes in Argentina in his day when he was serving there uh, in various capacities. So I suspect uh, the better the better part, the uh, another part of me says he may be working behind the scenes in a way that uh, makes it possible possible for him and the Catholic Church to continue to work for human rights there. But that's just a pure guess. Well, I appreciate your charity. That's humility. And this is a this is an intelligent, educated and spiritual man. So I think it's fair to give him a break, but it doesn't change the fact that after this is the world's longest running conflict on earth. And now, I mean, now that Suchi is is the state counselor and they the, the generals have put on suits, they're more popular than they've ever been, and they're killing more people than <laughs> than uh, even in the 90s. So uh, I I feel very, uh, I feel inner turmoil about, um, about a person with the kind of authority and influence that Francis has not using it. And by not using it um, in, in the mind of the Burman or in the mind of General Min Ong Liang and his cohorts, um, in my mind, is a, is a approval of or an affirmation of their legitimacy. Steve, I'm wondering if you can give us a, a general picture of the state of the church. Is it growing? Is it discouraged? Is it at a crossroads? How would you kind of describe um, its current situation? <laughs> well, the Quran taught me how to be a Christian. Um, if you want to see simple, powerful, uncomplicated faith, Go ahead and walk in the jungle with a bunch of Korean Baptists. They'll blow your mind and they'll humble you. Uh, my experience with Korean, Korean and Christians anywhere in the country is that they're very strong, they're very missional, and uh, they're very courageous. I, 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 in 2008, I, I visited a number of internally displaced hide sites um, inside Korean State. And I met many young missionaries who had gone to, you know, Judson's established seminaries. And these young guys were running around in a war zone where people were getting raped and killed and, you know, beat to death. And they were out there starting churches among these displaced people. And I was completely inspired and blown away. They're, they're running in a war zone with a guitar and a Bible. Um, that's the same kind of faith that I've experienced in Kachin State, Kareni State, Chin State, Shan State, and uh, and now I'm seeing the same kind of vibrant, courageous faith in among the Rohingya people. 
So the church is strong. They're outward looking. Uh, they are going to eventually be a force in the world, I believe. And, and they have my respect. We're feeling far away and without much agency here in the States. So tell us what listeners of the podcast can do to be supportive of uh, the Christians there especially. Uh, are there specific needs they have? Are there specific organizations that we could, they could donate to? What are the specific prayer requests that they could uh, begin praying about? Um, we're a part of a group of, of uh, Christians who are, who, who are working to reach out to Rohingya uh, people and have for years. They, um, they all want to remain anonymous. Um, they wouldn't want to be named um, in public, uh, as I understand it. The only ones of that group that don't want to remain anonymous and openly work with the Rohingya and are open. We are open about our faith with the Rohingya as well. The, the only ones I know are, is our organization. I don't mean to be arrogant when I say that, but uh, I don't. I just don't know of any um, that are that are consistently involved with the Rohingya. So I know that there are many ways and there are many organizations doing good things. Uh, my experience, you know, especially since 2012, working with the Rohingya, is that. Um, there aren't any visible ones around, as far as I can tell, anymore. Uh, so Partners Relief and Development, that's World Wide Web, partners.ngo, uh, or Partners Relief and Development on Facebook. You can find us anywhere if you Google us, uh, and especially if you type one of the names of the ethnic uh, minorities in Myanmar, you'll, you'll, you'll find our, our stuff. That's one way that you can support them. The obvious other way that, you know, I think we're going to wrap up with a, some reflection of joy, right? I was, I, w I have felt, um, especially over the past few months, um, when I, as I've been speaking in churches and, and in, in the United States, meeting our supporters, I have felt overwhelmed with the level of um, compassion, generosity, and empathy that has been shown to um, reaching the least of these, these Rohingya people. And for me, that's been a massive source of joy. And I, I, I hate to say this because it sounds ethnocentric, but in all of my travels uh, all over the world speaking on behalf of these people, there, there is no place as generous as the, the Christians in the United States. And it has been a, a huge source of encouragement to me. So there, that generosity, as well as the the posture of of, of prayer and hope that um, I have experienced with my brothers and sisters in faith, is a massive source of joy for me. That's a great that's a great reminder. And I just would just put an an exclamation point on when we try to frame these programs and we try to end with some source of joy and hope, it's not merely a psychological ploy to keep people keep listeners buoyed. It is in fact the very frame of our faith. Uh, and kind of what we're about here at Christianity Today. It's beautiful orthodoxy in the sense of orthodoxy in the sense of telling the truth about what's really going on in the world, but realizing that there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God or our fellow believers from the love of God, and therefore we end the show uh, in this manner pr precisely because it's it's a core theological conviction of ours that as bad as situations are, God is still working in the midst of them. In fact, in situations that look horrific, he is maybe acting more powerfully than we can even imagine. So thank you for bringing that note, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Mark and Morgan.
Uh, I appreciate your work and I'm a follower. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, as Steve alluded to, we're about to enter the part of the conversation we call precious moments, which is when people, aka us, share something that is bringing them joy. I do want to remind people before we move to this segment that you are welcome to share your thoughts and opinions about this episode with us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Mark, do you want to go? Well, I just spent Thanksgiving weekend with family in New Orleans, and the biggest piece of news was that my daughter, Teresa, is full with child. So that was kind of the precious moment of the weekend. So that was great. Number one for her. Number one for her. Number five for the family, for the wife the wife and I. <laughs> <laughs> Number five of grandkids. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. Mark, do you have a newsletter you want to remind people about? Oh, yeah. We published something here called The Galley Report, in which I put together links and commentary on those links about current events and thoughts and ideas that I find interesting myself, and I trust readers do as well. And you can subscribe to that by going to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. That's G-A-L-L-I report. And uh, read a sample issue there and decide if you want to subscribe. Steve, you are welcome to share another precious moment. Oh, Morgan, I have... I have, I'm overflowing when I talk about the, especially when I'm reminding myself about the Karen Christians and how they have really reshaped my, my idea of faith and simplified it. Uh, I feel deeply grateful. And when you talk about redemption coming out of suffering, uh, that is one piece that I hold high. These wonderful people have, have helped me understand and draw nearer to God in a way that I can never repay them. And the irony is that I went to help their children. <laughs> so uh, that's a source of joy for me. Thanks. Remind people of the website one more time. Yeah, it's World Wide Web Partners, P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S dot N-G-O. And on Twitter, it's at Partners Relief. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. My precious moment, I guess, just has to be my trip last week to South Dakota. I will highlight a particular part, which was we went to Sioux Falls, and that's where we spent Thanksgiving. And I don't know much about Sioux Falls, but they have an amazing park in it called Falls Park that has a waterfall in it. And during Christmas time, they put lights up on all these different trees, and they also light up their waterfall as well. And it's this lovely place where there's tons of families that come out, and you can drive around and turn your radio channel in your car to Christmas music. I just really like public Christmas decorations a lot and that was a really nice surprise to do that on Thanksgiving. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L That is it for us this week Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to the magazine Christianity Today which you can also become a subscriber at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred and Richard Clark. And it's available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But Apple Podcasts is really awesome. And we appreciate when people leave their reviews right there on that app. So thank you to everyone who has done that. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, 
visit dts.edu slash podcast.